Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. So I hope that everybody was able to have a good Easter last Sunday. Did you have a good Easter last Sunday? Uh, we had a great service here, just a great spirit in this room, and I, I was able to—I was able to get together with a small, you know, small group of my family. I actually got to see uh, my new niece, and so I was very, very thankful for that. Haven't been able to touch her or hold her yet, you know, but uh, you know, that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll get there eventually. We'll cross that bridge when it comes to it. But uh, it was good just to be in the room with her um, and see her. I, she couldn't take her eyes off me. That's all I'm saying. I mean, she's just like looking. She's like that guy looks like my dad, but it's an impression. Improvement. I don't know. I'm no, just teasing. I'm teasing. Now, probably wondering when did Dad get so old and gray. Um, anyway, but uh, we got to do that, and so I hope you got to have at least something, you know, something nice with your family, or, or got to get in contact with people uh, over the Easter holiday. It was nice to just be in church again and worship together uh, as a church family. And just as a public service announcement, I just want to make mention of this. We know this theologically, but we need to know this practically and spiritually as we uh, as we live our lives every day is that Jesus is alive this Sunday, the Sunday after Easter, just as much as he was alive last Sunday. And also he was alive the Sunday before Easter too, because when Jesus came out of the tomb, he never went back in. Okay. He's not like Punxsutawney Phil on Groundhog Day that just comes out of his hole once a year and decides whether there's going to be more winter or more summer. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, he didn't need the tomb anymore. He is alive forevermore. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's making intercession for us. He is building our dwelling place in heaven above. And one day he is returning for his church. And you know what? We're just not excited enough about that. We really are. And I think we're just so bogged down and pressed down with all the stuff that we see going on in our world. And we're like, man, is anything ever going to get better? Let me tell you something. Better came out of the tomb over 2,000 years ago. Better came out of the tomb over 2,000 years ago. Last week, we looked in the gospel according to John, and we looked that there's power that comes from the Easter message, from the resurrection of Christ. There's glory that comes from it. There's confidence, but most importantly, personally, the resurrection means that I can have everlasting peace in my life. Because Jesus lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all my fear can be gone. I can have peace. We saw that it was a peace that comes from knowing that God keeps his promises. God promised that God would conquer death in the grave. Jesus promised that he would rise from the dead, and he did, and he kept his word, and he has never broken a promise, and he never will. It's a peace that comes from a kept promise. It's also a peace that erases all the fear and all the doubt that may come our way. Now, that's not to say that there aren't things that scare us. I'm scared of spiders. The resurrected Christ is still not going to keep me from shrieking when I see a spider crawl across my floor. But I'm talking about that fear that just debilitates you in life, that fear of death, that fear of the unknown. We don't have to fear that because Jesus has our future in his grasp. We talked about the peace that gives our lives meaning, that because he lives, I have a purpose for living. What purpose in li- is there in life if we don't have more to live for than beyond this? How disappointing would it be to live through a global pandemic and find out you live and die and there's nothing else beyond this? It's the peace also that comes from being pardoned from sin and knowing that you've been freed from death. And church, this is something that I think we push to the wayside way too much. 
See, I believe that when we come to worship the Lord, it should be it should be passionate. It should be a party. We are worshiping a risen Savior. We're not coming to a weekly funeral service. We're coming to a celebration of our living Savior. And that's what church should be. Church should not be this just, just a boring funeral service. It should not be a place where people just walk around with their heads held down. It should be a place where people come to find life and find life everlasting. And if you want to come and find life in Jesus, he better find life among his people. Amen? So it was the peace of the resurrection. It's also a peace that fueled the disciples to turn the world upside down for Christ. We see in the book of Acts, and we see later on as the Christians begin to kind of just like upset the apple cart. Jesus upset it enough, but then the resurrection of Christ, and then all of a sudden all these people seeing the resurrected Christ, going around telling everybody that he's alive and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. It began to mess things up. And the Bible said that even unbelievers said that they turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. The question that I have for us today, 2,000 years later, is what about us? Are we still turning the world upside down for Christ? 2,000 millennia later, we're holding to the same kept promise of the resurrected Christ, right? We're holding to the same promise of a resurrected Christ that he one day is going to return, right? 20 centuries later now, we're holding to the same life-giving message that pardons us from sin and gives us victory over death and erases fear and doubt. Yet can we honestly say as disciples of Jesus Christ that we are still turning the world upside down like the disciples did after Jesus ascended back into heaven? The question that we have to ask ourselves as the church, and I mean Graceway specifically, but as the church of Jesus Christ as a whole, but we can only do about, we can only take care of our house, right? In this house, here's the question. What are we doing with the peace of that resurrection? What are we doing with the peace of knowing that Jesus is alive? What are we doing with the victory of having this gospel message that has set us free? What are we doing with that? Because I've got to believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead and gave us this gospel message and gave us the Great Commission for more than just getting up, getting food, getting paid, and going back to bed. He gave us this so that we could tell others about him. He gave us the gospel and he gave us the church and he gave us this ministry that we have so that we could turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. Once the world was turned upside down, he didn't intend for it to be turned right side up again. But everywhere you look, you don't have to find evidence. Everywhere you don't, have, you, don't, you don't have to look very far to find overwhelming evidence that instead of the world being turned upside down for Christ, it seems like the world's being turned against them. So we're currently living in the midst, not only of a global pandemic, but also in the midst of a cultural revolution where the definition of morality is changing dramatically all around us. I'm 41 years old. I never thought I'd get to the point where I said, I don't know if I can keep up with the pace of change around me. Yet here I am. It's changing every single day. And it almost reminds you of what Scripture says uh, about the culture that was defined in Scripture that called evil good and good evil. It almost reminds you of the culture that was defined back in the Old Testament where they had forgotten how to blush because of their sin. And you know what? For church people, for those who, who hold to the word of God, who hold to like what we had looked at through the Ten Commandments and this, this call of God for us to live according to his way, it may get frightening when you look around and see that you're not the majority anymore, right? We're not the majority anymore. We're the minority. But church, I want to remind you, we've never been the majority. 
We've always been the minority, but I love this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Right? I want to remind you this. The Christianity, the gospel message that we live by, it transcends culture. It transcends moral revolutions. It transcends laws of nations. It transcends nations themselves. It has lived and thrived in a diversity of cultures and contexts, and it can thrive in the midst of our moral and cultural revolution today. So don't fear. Live with the peace of the resurrected Christ and the gospel truth that we hold and that we have to share with the world around us. But here's the thing. While we see this revolution taking place and while we see all of this, these things happening and changing around us, what I see and what I hear when I talk to fellow pastors and other church leaders and hear church experts and all those types of things talk is that many people in church today are scared and they don't know what to do because they see church crowds getting smaller and smaller, less and less attendance to events and programs and all of those types of things, and they're wondering what's gonna happen. We're losing ground. And now the people, and then people also begin to think the people in Washington don't agree with my way of life either anymore. What's gonna happen? Is everything just about over? I wanna just promise you this. Nobody gets to make the call on when this is over except the one who holds the throne. And until it's over, church, we're still his anointed body. We are still the embassy of heaven. And we live by the kingdom principles. We live by house rules. Church health experts and missional strategists tell us that when it comes to church life, when you think about the church, there's only real, really three different types of churches when it comes down to it. There are churches who are on the incline, those that are growing in number and ministry reach. There are churches on the decline, those that seem to be decreasing in number and in their ministry reach. And then there are those churches that are on the recline. Those are the churches that are pretty much stagnant in number and in ministry reach. And in the state of Kentucky, nearly 75% of the churches are either in a state of recline or decline. Only 25% can report that they are in the state of incline. And that was pre-COVID. I know that COVID caused a lot of attendance and the way we look at all that stuff to shift. And you know what? In a lot of ways, that's a good thing because we can't base our success all on, forgive my language, but budgets, buildings, and butts. We just can't do it. There has to be a new scoreboard. There has to be a new litmus test of how we are seeing us going about the work of God. The statistic I shared with you is a pandemic proportion problem. We're sick and tired of hearing the word pandemic, aren't we? I know I'm sick and tired of hearing the word pandemic. I know I'm sick and tired of living under a pandemic, all right? But what I just shared, the statistic of 75% of our churches in our state either being in a, in a position of recline or decline, that is a pandemic problem as well. And if something doesn't change, the reclining churches will turn into declining churches. The declining churches will turn into dead churches, Folks, Jesus didn't start the church. The living Savior didn't start the living church to die off. And just like with the pandemic we're currently in, we're left kind of asking this question, is there a way out of this? You look at those numbers and you think, is there a way out of this? What can we do to see this change? Is there a way out of this? Or is this going to be the new normal with all the social change, with all the things that we see happening around us? Are the days of church and are the days of church life and are the days of gospel ministry, are those all going away? 
And, and resoundingly, the answer cannot be no. No matter how many people want to say, I hope it does, the gospel commands us, the Great Commission commands us that it cannot go away. The gospel must go forward. And our text today that we read just a little while ago comes from the book of Psalms. It's called a Psalm of Ascent. And what that, what that is, is this, this is the first of 15 Psalms of Ascent in God's holy hymnal. What that means is a song that would be recited by the people of God as a praise as they were walking into Jerusalem for a day of a Jewish national feast. And as they were approaching the temple, there were 15 steps that led up to the temple porch. And so it's believed that they would stop on a step and they would recite a hymn of ascent and they would step on and they would begin. So imagine that this is the text that people are reciting. It's a song of remembrance of God's goodness, but it's also a song of remembrance of just how bad things had gotten and what God had did to, what God did to bring them out of it. It describes a time when there was a remnant of God's people that returned to Jerusalem or the city of Zion, as it is called in the Old Testament sometimes, when they returned after a moment of captivity, after a season of captivity. And, and, and captivity in the Old Testament is always a metaphor for what sin does to us. Sin takes us captive. Sin kills us. Sin pulls us away from the place of refuge in God. Sin will always drag us away from fellowship with him. And it will always leave desolate what used to bloom where you were. It will always do that. That will always be the effect of sin. And so what we see here is this is a psalm that remembers a time in Jewish history when they had come back, a remnant of God's people were brought back, and they were left looking at God's once beautiful city, and there's weeds growing up, and it's barren, and it's desolate, and the walls are destroyed, and it looks like there is nothing that can prosper there anymore. Kind of reminds you of where we are right now with the statistic I just showed you, right? How are things ever going to get better? What are things, how can things get better? How can we see revival in our city? How can we see revival in our nation? How can we see revival in the world? I'm telling you, church, it starts right here. That's what had to happen to Israel. Israel went into captivity. The whole reason they went into captivity was because they lost their passion and their zeal for God to begin with. They wandered from him. And so as they sinned and as they wandered from him, captivity was the result. Captivity in that sin that they thought was so precious and they thought was better than God, they were stuck in it. And now they had to break out of it. So this is what we see this morning. This is what was taking place. They're left wondering as they look where there once were blooms, there is now bleakness and brokenness. And where there was once blessings, there is now barrenness. And they're left wondering, what now? Is there a way out of this? Is there a way to see things get better? And our text this morning, church, proves that there is a way out for them. And there is also a way out of this gospel situation that we find ourselves in today, too. Because when it comes to this pandemic of the gospel, the 75% of recline and decline, I believe with my whole heart that there is a way out of it. Matter of fact, I don't believe it. I know there's a way out of it because I know a living Savior who walked out of a grave and he never walked back in. And he lives today to offer salvation to anyone who would believe. And the salvation he offers is the hope of the church. It's not just the hope of the church. It's the hope of the world outside our church buildings as well. So today I want to open our gospel to every home series by looking at three things that our church has to do if we're going to prepare to take the gospel to every home in our zip code. Number one, the church must truly believe that Jesus is enough. 
The church must return to a belief that Jesus is truly enough. Remember that old hymn, Christ is all I need? Christ is all I need. He's all I need. It's just like a repetitive over and over and over again. You know why it's so repetitive? It's because we need to continually drill that into our hearts and into our minds and into our spirits that Christ is all we need because there's a lot of flashy stuff around. And even in church life, even Christians, there's a lot of flashy stuff. Even in ministry life, there's a lot of flashy stuff that can pull us away from thinking that Jesus is all that we need. There's a lot of things. Israel realized in our text that, that God was their only source of, res- of restoration. Look at verse number one and verse number four. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who were in a dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then and our tongues with shouts of joy. And then it says in verse number four, it says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like the water courses of the Negev. What the the Israelites had seen or what the the remnant had seen as they're standing there looking at that desolation, they remembered a time when the Lord had restored fullness to them. They praised God because they realized that their goodness, that their mercy, that all the things that they had, their blooming plants, their growing agriculture, their booming economy, all those things that they had wonderfully seen and heard about from past generations until God sent them into captivity because they wandered away from him. All those things were given to them by God. It didn't come from their ingenuity. It didn't come from their hard work. It was from them. Notice again the focus on the Lord. It says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And then he says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like the Negev. Israel proclaimed that God was enough. Look at verse number two. It says, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us, and we were joyful. Four times in four verses, we see the centerpiece of the message, the one they are calling to, the one they are giving their worship and their attention to is the Lord. Why? Because the Lord had to be the centerpiece of that nation. That was part of the covenant that they made with them back at the mountain of Sinai, back in the Ten Commandments, that God would be the only one that they would worship, that he would be their source. And church... It hasn't changed for us. He's our source. He's our foundation. He's our rock that we build everything on. The church has to truly come to a place where they believe that Jesus is enough. See, both those inside the nation of Israel and outside the nation of Israel, according to verses number two and three, were made aware that God had restored them, that God had brought them out of captivity, and that he had returned them home, that he had made Zion, the city of God, alive again. See, God had been enough, nothing else. Nothing else would satisfy, satisfy, not them, not the hard work that they did. God had been their deliverance. God had been their protector. God had been their restoration, and God was all their hope. Church, I ask the question, can we say that about us? Is that what we are hoping in? Is our hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Or are we hoping in some other stuff? How big our budget might be, how good our advertising might be, how handsome the preacher might be. You guys are in trouble if that's what we're holding on to. How wonderful the worship team may be. By the way, they did a fantastic job today. But all that pales in comparison to the one that we're here for, and that's Jesus. See, the gospel teaches us that Jesus is enough, doesn't it? 
When you think about the gospel message, it teaches us that Jesus is enough because it's all centered on Jesus. We bring nothing of ourselves into the gospel message. The only thing that we bring to the gospel is us, beggars begging for eternal life from the gospel. It's nothing that we can do except fall upon God's grace to receive it. It's about Jesus. Salvation is about Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus. All of this is about Jesus. It's not about anything else. And we try to add and tack things on. Jesus is enough. He's not just enough, he's more than enough. But somewhere along the way, every generation of Christianity seems to lose sight of this truth that he's enough. It's not just us. Every generation of Christianity seems to lose sight of the fact that God and that Jesus is enough. In the Old Testament, we see times and times again, in the Old Testament, when, when Israel went through periods of great faith and obedience to God and great blessings, and then what happened? They turned around and they started worshiping Baal or they started worshiping false gods and they didn't trust him like they should. And it started a cycle of blessing and then brokenness and captivity and then being brought back and then being turning back to God again. Each time we stray, we will be brought back to a point where we realize that he is all we need. The question is, how, much will, how many ashes will, be, will, be, will we be raking out when we come to that point? The early church was very zealous for Jesus. You read through the book of Acts, but then a couple centuries began to pass, and Constantine, the emperor of Rome, made Christianity the legal religion of Rome. And guess what happened? The church began to lean more heavily on political power than they did on Jesus, and then it ushered in the period of the Dark Ages. In our recent history in American Christianity in the 1950s, churches began looking for ways to attract more people because all of a sudden there were a whole lot more entertainment options around. There were drive-in theaters, there were more people were having cars, radios, TVs, all of those things, and just going to a camp meeting or hearing the local preacher wasn't the thing to do that night. So churches began to think, we've got to find something that will continue bringing people to the house of God. So they began to have nicer buildings. They built fellowship halls where people could come to congregate in fellowship. And then in the 70s through the 90s, it was about having attractive programs, basketball leagues, clubs, youth, youth ministries, women's ministries, men's ministries. Then it was about having an awesome playground or a place that family could come for family fun nights or awesome music and a great website and an advertising plan that would get people in the doors. Does any of this sound familiar? And you know what the thing is? There's nothing necessarily wrong with any of that, but here's what it does. It takes a whole lot of money and it takes a whole lot of resources and it takes a whole lot of time and effort and the goal then shifts from it being about Jesus to being about having buildings with big crowds. But something was missing from the picture. Until we saw the decline across the majority of our churches, we still saw it. Even though budgets kept getting bigger, we began to hype Jesus even more. We still see the decline happening. Why? It's because there's nothing wrong with doing great things for a great God. There's nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem. The temptation becomes that when those things become what we lean on to see people come in our doors, it quickly becomes the focus. It quickly becomes what we're about. And then all we end up doing is trying to sneak Jesus in the back door like some bait and switch. It becomes about we got to have this many people to keep this going and that going. And somewhere along the way, the gospel, if we can make room for it, we'll get it there. The silence you're feeling is the silence of, yeah, that's, that's right. But you see, the truth is, is Christ is enough, right? 
If Christ is truly enough, we need to return to that. I'm not saying close down all the buildings. I'm not saying kill all the programs. I'm not saying any of that. We need to return to a place where Christ is enough. He is our hope and stay. Even more so, he's not just enough, he's more than enough. He's not the special guest that just shows up in our ministry when we just decide to let him in. He's the sole reason we're a church. He's the sole reason we're here. He's who we are commanded to compel people to see and to come to. Jesus is the only answer for our church and for our communities. This is why we, along with a couple thousand other Baptist churches in Kentucky, are taking on this goal, this vision, to try to take the gospel to every home. Because it's true, 75% of churches are not seeing people come to them. Imagine this. The gospel is that we must go. I believe there was someone one day who said, go into the world and preach the gospel, right? He didn't say, build and have them come. Now, we have to have a place to worship. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, when it comes to seeing new people come to know Christ, we must come to them. We must go to them. The answer to the decline and the recline problem in our churches is not going to be a new and attractional program or a flashy facility to entice people in our doors. The answer to our current cultural and social crisis is not to gain more power on Capitol Hill that will force people to just do right in our eyes. The answer to the problem is the same as it ever has been since Jesus walked out of the tomb. The answer is Jesus because the problem is people need Jesus. And the way that Jesus designed for people to know him is for us, his people, to take him to them. To take him to them. So let me say this as bluntly as I possibly can. You know this, but we need to be reminded of it quite often. Let me say this as bluntly and as lovingly as I possibly can. People can be in our church building or in a church building across this state every single time the doors are open and still die and go to hell. They can still have that happen. People can be good moral people and follow all the moral rules that the Bible says. They can live in a country that has the greatest moral laws in the world and they can still die and go to hell. People can fight for truth and justice and still go to hell. People, but here's what people can't do. People can't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior and still go to hell. We've got to start seeing people on their soul level. We've got to start looking at them and instead of looking at them and whether they're doing all the right things is do they know the right one? Do they know Jesus as their savior? Jesus is the only one who saves. Jesus is our greatest and most vital and desperate need. And the way that Jesus designed for people to know him is for us to take him to them. The second thing is, is that the church, after we come to trust only in Jesus, we need to fall on our knees and ask God to break our hearts for the homes within our community. We have to ask God, we have to fall on our knees and ask God to break our hearts for the homes that are within our community. At verse number five, it says, those who sow in what? In tears. We cry for two different reasons, right? We cry because we're sad and we cry because we're happy or we cry for joy. There are tears of sadness and there are tears of joy. In this passage, there are both tears of sadness and joy, but here is a tear of sadness. It's, this, it's the tears of a brokenhearted who realizes, I have not been doing what I should do and I need to be doing it again. It's the brokenhearted for what they see 
all around them. When the people arrived back home, what they saw was desolation. They saw death. They saw destruction. And when there is no life, there is no harvest. And when there is no harvest, especially in an agrarian culture like that, there is no joy. And the psalmist said that tears should be shed over the lack of life and the lack of a harvest. Folks, we can't see the statistic that we just shared this morning and it not move us to tears. Especially those who know Christ as their Savior. What that means is there are people who are not following Jesus Christ. Jesus noted that same kind of sorrow. Jesus shed tears over the lost. I don't know about you, but if I'm going to shed tears, I want to shed tears over what my Savior shed tears over. When we saw the crowds in Matthew chapter 9, here's what he says. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and they were dejected like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant or the harvest is plenteous, but the workers and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest fields. See, Jesus was brokenhearted when he saw the people and the pain and the need that he saw in them. Yes, he healed the lepers and the blind. He did some amazing things. Yes, he fed them fish and loaves. Yes, he attracted a great number of people. But what motivated his ministry was a brokenness for the sheep who had no shepherd. Jesus didn't get caught up in the numbers. Jesus didn't get caught up in all of the buzz and the hype and all of that type of stuff. What he was caught up in was what the Father had sent him to do, to seek and to save those who were lost. Because those numbers, guess what? Those numbers dwindled when things got tough. 5,000 plus people sat on a hillside when he was giving them fish and bread, but only three of his followers were noted to be at the base of the cross when he died. That's not a church growth strategy to follow. But that's our Savior. See, life in the church begins with brokenness in the heart of its church members. The question is, what kind of church do we want to be part of? What kind of church do we want to be? Do you want to be part of a dead and dying church? Because judging by the numbers, there's plenty of them around by the statistics. Or do we want to be a church that is alive and vibrant? Let me tell you that you'll find a church that is truly alive and truly vibrant. It's not always going to be the church that has a full activities calendar. It's not always going to be the church that has a full budget. And it's not always going to be the church that's full of people. It's going to be the church that's full of tears. Tears that are broken for the lost. Because that's when life begins to spring up in us. When we're broken for the things that breaks Jesus' heart, we'll go out with the heart that Jesus came down to us in. Because life in the church begins with brokenness in his people. Brokenness in scripture always precedes blessings. He says this, remember, he says, if you go out in tears, you shall reap in joy, right? If we sow in tears, we will then reap in joy. Evangelist Junior Hill once said this. He says, if you're not humbled, you'll never be able to come to a place of hallelujah. If you don't repent, you'll never be able to come to a place of rejoicing. And if you don't cry, you'll never be able to come to a place of crowning. We have to plead, we have to beg, we have to ask God to break our hearts for the people that is living on our church field. And this is not something, let me say this, this is not something that just one or two of us can do. 
The staff can't do it. The preacher can't do it. The deacons can't do it. It has to be a whole church brokenness. Every one of us. So the question is, how long and how much should I pray for God to use us to start winning people within our zip code? How long should I pray for this? As long as it takes. As long as it takes. Let me ask you just some personal questions. Ask yourself this. When did you last pray for the souls of the people specifically within the 40503 zip code? And what did that prayer sound like? When was the last time you honestly and truly considered a person's soul more than you considered their appearance or their race or their political affiliation or their sexuality or their bumper sticker? See, this is what our culture tells us to do. It tells us to break everybody up into groups and look at them and stereotype them and fit them in this category. But according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's only two categories. They're saved and there's lost. That's how we need to see people. Christians shouldn't be mad at the lost for acting like the lost. But when we say this, the lost should get really mad at Christians for not caring that the lost are lost. Did you catch that? Church, we can't get mad at the lost for acting like the lost. That's what the lost know to do. It's what you and I knew to do until we knew better. We knew Jesus. But what the lost should be getting mad at us about is that we don't care enough that the lost are lost. See, because when we begin to care for the lost and that becomes our greatest passion, we then have the heart of heaven. Here's what the Bible says in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is the one who said this and Jesus came straight from heaven. So he's been there. He's a citizen of there. He knows what goes on in heaven. And here's what he says. I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't think they need it. So the church must ask for a broken heart. The church, number three, must also give attention to sowing the seed of the gospel. We have to give attention to sowing the seed of the gospel. After my heart has been broken... After I realize that Jesus is all that matters and after my heart has been broken that the world knows Jesus, what do I do with that? I have to begin to sow the seed. Look at verse number six of our text. Though one goes along weeping, carrying a bag of precious seed. I love how he says precious seed. It's not just any seed, it's precious seed. It's seed that is important. The psalmist emphasizes the importance of us doing our part. We can't just sit idly by and watch things magically happen. We must go. We must get in the fields. As Jesus said, the harvest is plenteous, but the laborers are few. So while the, while the people noticed in Israel that the increase in the good fortune would come from God, they also understood their part in the process. They understood it would be the Lord who would provide the increase, but that they must be busy about the Lord's work. And what that means for us today is that the church, we must go out. When I say go out, I don't mean we need to just go out to lunch after the service is over with. We need to go out into the highways, as the Bible says, and into the hedges and to compel them to be in the kingdom of God. We need to compel them to know Jesus Christ. Notice especially the word goes. He says if you go out bearing precious seed. You can't spell God without go, right? You also can't spell gospel without go. Right? 
Jesus told us that we are to go and make disciples in Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and teach all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and teach them to observe all the things I've commanded you and I'll be with you until the end of the age. In Mark chapter 16, the last thing it says, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples of all nations. That word nations there means people groups. There's people, there are neighborhoods, there's pockets of people all around us, all around our church building physically that need to know Jesus Christ. So we must go. Did you know that the word for church, the Greek word for church is ekklesia? And do you know what that means literally? It means a called out assembly. We are an assembly of people that has been called out by God. But I fear sometimes that our churches are more concerned with being gathered in than being called out. We're more concerned with feeling comfortable as we're gathered in. And here's the thing, in the middle of a moral change and all those things that go on around us, in the middle of a society that seems to be turning against God, it can be very easy and very tempting for the people of God to just huddle up together and protect ourselves together. But that is not what Jesus did and that's not what we are called to do with the gospel either. Church, we've been called out by our Savior to go out and to make him known. And the beautiful thing is he's given us exactly what we need to do it. Because he's given us the seed of his word. See, in our text, the psalmist talks about going along and carrying this bag of precious seed. And in this context, the psalmist was speaking of rebuilding God's city and growing crops again. But here, in our New Testament context, that seed is the word of God. This is the seed, the gospel message. The word of God is our seed. It's the seed that is planted inside the soil of people's hearts to let it grow to a place of salvation and fruition. See, Jesus told a parable when he was here on earth. He told a parable about a farmer who planted seeds on three different kinds of soil. Remember that, remember that parable? He said somebody threw it down on the rocks and it got choked out and somebody threw it in the weeds and it, or on the side of the road where it was really, really hard and it couldn't take root. But then he threw it in the fertile soil and what happened? It took root. And here's what he said in Luke chapter 8, verse number 11. He said, here's the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and excuse me, enduring word of God. Folks, the word of God is precious seed and the word of God does not return void. You cast that seed, no matter what soil it falls on, it's going to have an impact. We're not responsible for making it grow. We're responsible for spreading it. We must spread it. The formula is a system, not of reaping and sowing. That's what agriculture is. But the formula for gospel harvest is a formula of weeping and sowing. So the key to seeing our world, our 40503 world turned upside down, instead of turning away, is a repeated weeping and sowing the seed of God's word. See, so many times we see Jesus talk about the gospel in terms of agriculture. He said the fields are white and ready to harvest, but the laborers are few in the book of Matthew. He said the fields are white and ready to harvest. One sows and another reaps in the book of John. And then Paul said in 1 Corinthians, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but only God gives the growth or gives the increase. The result, the re, the result of sowing and weeping will always be reaping and rejoicing though. This is the beautiful thing that we have to know. 
that while we are looking at times and we are looking at statistics that seem scary and that look bleak, understand that if we go out weeping and sowing, we will one day see a day of reaping and rejoicing. You say, man, I've done this before. I've only led like one or two people to Christ. Praise God, that's one or two people that will escape the fires of hell. That's reaping and that's rejoicing to rejoice about. Remember when I talked about shedding tears, shedding tears of brokenness? We also as a church have to begin shedding tears of joy when we see somebody come to Christ or we hear of somebody sharing the gospel with someone and we hear about somebody being saved. Being, as we sang about, undone by the goodness of Jesus. The agricultural cycle is sow seed, reap sheaves. Go out crying and come back shouting. Go out weeping and come back rejoicing. Look again at verse number six, because it wasn't just about going out with seed. There's an end of that verse. He says, though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, read this with me, church, he will surely come back again with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. This is a promise that if we go out sowing and weeping, we will see rejoicing and reaping. Bringing in the sheaves. Remember that song? Bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing. Bringing in the sheaves. It's where this song comes from. Folks, I don't know about you, but I want to see some rejoicing. There's been a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. Look, we know who holds tomorrow. We know who holds the future. But people outside our church walls may not know that, and they need to know that hope is found in Jesus Christ. They thought long enough that hope was found in a president. They thought long enough that hope was found in a, in, a, in, a, in a law. Hope is found in Jesus Christ. The question is, are we going to share it? We're the ones who know it. Are we going to share it? Remember when I said that the sign of a church is one that's alive and it's vibrant and it's one that's full of tears? I'm ready to start shedding some tears of joy of seeing people come to know Christ as their Savior. Are you? But first, before we do that, our hearts have to be broken. There needs to be tears shed that those who don't know Christ are without hope. So when did you last pray for the souls of the people in the 40503 zip code? And what did it sound like? I want to give you a challenge this morning as we close out. Let me give you a challenge. Take time today as you're driving home or as you're driving to lunch or wherever it is, because I know that because we've moved recently, many people here don't live within that 40503. I realize that. But this is where we're called to make the greatest impact. Now, we all individually are supposed to be taking the gospel to our friends and our family and our neighbors. But as a church, we need to be taking the gospel right here in our own Jerusalem. When was the last time you prayed for Jerusalem? What did it sound like? And here's a challenge. Take a moment as you're driving home today or as you're driving to lunch, just turn down a street of houses. And as you're driving down it, just begin praying. Praying for the people behind those doors who may be hurting, who may be sick, who may be fearful. Behind those doors whose children may be abused, Behind those doors whose families may be struggling with alcoholism, drug addiction. Struggling with being the victim of racism. Behind those doors are real people. 
They're not just people that we pass by to get to where we're needing to go. They are our mission. So take a moment to drive down that street. And as you drive down that street, just begin to ask God, God, prepare their hearts. Because the gospel's coming. We're bringing it. If we truly believe that Jesus is our only hope, we know that he's their only hope too. So take a moment, just take that challenge, just drive down there and say, God, break my heart for this street. You've put our church in this community for a reason and you've put me in this church for a reason and you've called me out to make a difference in this community on this street. That's what the 40 days of prayer is going to be about. That's what our prayer meeting next Sunday night is going to be about. That's what this series is going to be about is realizing their life is not just about surviving life. It's about thriving and telling people how to know Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, would you have your will and way in this time now? Do as you see fit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand today, I invite you just like I do every week. An altar is open if you need to come today and pray. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. I know I preach pretty much to the church. But I said time and time again, the only hope you have is Christ. Come to him today if you don't know him, if you're watching today. Email us. We'll show you how you can know Christ. He loves you and he wants to be your savior. That's why we're here. Let that, not, let that be abundantly clear. We're here for you to know him. So as we begin to have a time. If you need to come today, would you please come? Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section, or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 1030 a.m., We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.